morning, I don't have the ability to say, hold on a moment and then change my voice, so he's going to have to change it back there. If you'd like to join me in your Bibles in the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 1. good to see everybody this morning. Uh, good to have each one of you here. Pray that you've already received a blessing through the singing and that you will receive a blessing from the preaching of God's word. Just wanted to say uh, a comment about yesterday's outing for the men. We went down to the ocean uh, and did some kayaking in the slough and I learned a few things. I learned that I can't trust my son and... <laughs> should have known that a long time ago, but I, I'm learning more and more every day, and I've learned that I can't trust Peter's, Peter's son either. So, that little guy was uh, trying to get me left and right. It's like, man, this little guy is not going to give up. And the thing of it was, his dad didn't encourage him to give up either. He, I got him back, so that's all right. He did tell me this yesterday. He said, tomorrow at church, I'm going to get you. <laughs> so I came in this morning, and he went like this. <laughs> like, who is this kid? <laughs> he's, all, he's all of, what, six or seven years old? Like, thank goodness. What are his teenage years going to look like? <laughs> we'll be praying for you guys. Uh, it was a good time, though. We did have a... I think we had about 20 guys out there yesterday with, with, the, with children as well. And so it was a real, uh, just a blessing, um, celebrating Father's Day a little bit. Next week is Father's Day, and so I encourage you to come for that. Pastor Michael will be speaking next week. We'll be on a, our, my in-laws are celebrating 50 years of marriage, and so we're going to go and celebrate with them next week. And so um, be pray, praying for Michael and also... Um, be here to hear him preach. And then the, the following week, we will be back, Lord willing, but um, a Golub is going to be delivering the message that Sunday. So we'll be able to hear him preach as well. So it'll be a couple of encouraging weeks, and I encourage you to be here for those weeks to be encouraging and also to be encouraged in the Lord. Um, if, you have, if you did not receive an outline this morning but would like one for the service to follow along, there's a few slots in there that you can write in. If you did not get one but would like one, if you just raise your hand, we would make sure that you got one this morning. Is anybody like that? Okay, looks like we're, we're in good shape. So the first thing I want you to do on your, on your sheet is I want you to write the text that Jared just read, which was Ephesians 1. Um, what was the verses, Jared? Okay, 15 to the end of the chapter. I asked I ask him to read that passage of Scripture because it is a parallel to what we'll be talking about this morning. Ephesians is, is uh, in so many ways, a side-by-side parallel to the book of Colossians. If you read them together, you'll, you'll see all of the connections to them. And even just the last verse where it says that he is all and in all. And, and we have that exact same phrase in uh, the book of Colossians. Diane, did you have a question? Yeah, Ephesians 1, verses 15 through the end of the chapter. So uh, Colossians gives us that same 
uh, feel, and this morning we're going to deal with verses 9 down to verse 14. And again, this parallels the Ephesians passage, so if you write that down and, and then you want to go home and do some research, then those two passages are very harmonious and give us, a, perhaps even Ephesians gives us a little bit more of a broadening scope than Colossians does, but we're going to deal with Colossians this morning, and, and you can benefit from the book of Ephesians in your own uh, personal studies. We want, you, we want to remind you each week that the mystery in Colossians is simply this, all in Christ, Christ in you, and you in the church. And so everything, that, everything that's necessary for life and godliness is found in a person, in an individual, and that is Jesus Christ. He was sent into this world 2,000 years ago to take upon himself our sins, uh, to die in our place, to bring forgiveness, justification, uh, salvation, sanctification, Christ accomplished everything that we need to be uh, one with the Lord, to be uh, accepted by him, to be welcomed into his uh, um, family, his kingdom. All of that is, is captured in a person. And then that person went to heaven, ascended up into heaven, and he sent his spirit down, and his spirit comes to live within people. And when his spirit comes to live within people, he performs a spiritual union, if you will, between us and himself. And so we now become a part of the kingdom of Christ on the basis of the fact that his spirit lives within us. And therefore, all of the things that Christ has himself uh, purchased or earned in his death and resurrection, they become ours. We are credited those things on the basis of Christ accomplishing them for us. So what we would say is we would say that we are complete, we are mature, we have reach the goal on the basis of Christ in us, right? There's nothing more to add to it. Christ is enough. Christ is sufficient. Christ is satisfactory. Christ is everything. And that really is the theme of the New Testament. The scripture talks about in Matthew 13, the parable of the the one who finds the treasure and hides it in the field and goes and sells all that he has to have that treasure. And then the one who searches the whole world for the pearl, finds this pearl of great price and then sells all that he has so that he can have that pearl. And in both cases, the treasure and the pearl are both pictures of whom? They're both pictures of Christ. In other words, Christ is so significant that it's worth giving up everything that this world has to offer and to have him, right? And then Jesus says to his disciples, if you want to be my disciple, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. So to have Christ, there's, there is earthly sacrifice. There is obviously heavenly blessings. What we're going to look at this morning is a prayer that the Apostle Paul gives for this church. And, and, and in this prayer, we, we get to see the heart of Paul for Colossians. It's an interesting church because, as we noted in chapter 3, we we noticed that Paul never did go there. He was never present there. It was a church that was likely started as a result of the revival at Ephesus. And somebody got saved at Ephesus and went to Colossae and decided to start a church there, which in the Bible days, that was not abnormal. As a matter of fact, most of the epistles are written to churches who had very little knowledge of what we would call basic doctrines. What you had is you had somebody going, getting converted and going back and saying, hey, I got saved. I want everybody else to get saved, right? And then when people start getting saved, what do you have? You have a church. Just like that. 
Now, I, I wrote an article once for a, a, a Bible paper that was entitled there, that a movement precedes a church. And they have to have a movement first. And, that, and that's what these guys would do is they would get a movement in their heart. They would go and they would start a movement in their community. And that movement in their community would turn into a church. But they would be very doctrinally uh, what we would call babies. And so Paul would write them letters saying, hey, you know, here's some really fundamental things that you need to know as you leave this church. But these were really untrained. A lot of these men were untrained men. They were, they were, they were often just, just um, uh, passionate about the Lord and wanting other people to hear what the Lord had to say. And there's a great challenge to us as we think about our own Christian life, isn't it? Because our Christian life has become, um, the 21st century Christian has become the intellectual that has to be fully trained before they ever do anything for the Lord. And so what happens with that thinking is we never do anything for the Lord. Have you ever heard somebody say, I'll do it when I'm ready, right? And the problem with that is, is you're, you're never ready, right? So you just sit on your, you sit on your rear, um, sit on your rear, that's okay word to say. <laughs> Started getting a little looks here, but that's all right. I'm good. <laughs> and so you sit on your, we sit on our rear and we don't do anything. We're asking in the Bible days when somebody got converted, they, they were passionate, and excited for what the Lord was doing. So in, in Paul's prayer, what you see, what we, what we will see is just his heart and his desire for God's people in light of the mystery that he's getting ready to unfold for them. And this is a serious mystery. This is something that is, is totally profound. And he's trying to help these young believers understand a mystery that is um, impossible to get from a human perspective. They have to wrestle with it in, in the power of the Holy Spirit. In addition to, um, and included in Paul's prayer, and also really the theme of, of Colossians is this, what we would call a tension. Now, there's a tension that's presented to us. It's not just presented to us in the book of Colossians, but it's really a tension that goes throughout the New Testament. I'm going to give you the tension, and I want you to think about it. And if the question at the top of your, everybody see the question at the top of the little thing you're filling out? If that question didn't spark any, like, uh, I don't know if I agree with this, or, wow, that doesn't look right, then maybe read it again. Because it really was meant to spark within you a, uh, a pause. And maybe even, a, uh, like, is Pastor John going off the deep end type of a thought? I just wanted to, I want you to think with me this morning. Because a statement like the one that's on your paper is, can be very, very heretical if not understood with the tension that it presents. So the tension that is presented in the book of Colossians is the possibility of something being complete, but still needing to be completed. It is something being perfect, but still needing to be perfected. It is something being full, but still needing to be filled up. And those are only a few of the actual phrases that you'll see in the book of Colossians where in one text it will say we are full and the next text it will say fill up. In one text it will say that we're complete and the next text it will say be completed. In one text it will say that we are mature and the next text it will say that we need to become mature. In one text it will say that we are righteous and the next text it will say that we need to become righteous. So there's a real true tension here in our text between that which is complete and that which is being completed. Let me read a few verses to you to give you a picture of this. Colossians 1.24, the Bible says, Now I rejoice, the Apostle Paul speaking, 
Now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ. That seems to be a contrary statement to the theme of Philippian, of Colossians, which is everything in Christ. Right? So here we're presented with a, a book that the theme says everything is in Christ and there's nothing that we need. And then it says Paul's going to fill up what is lacking in Christ. How do you fill up something that is complete? How do you fill a cup that's already full to the top? Right? It's impossible to do. He says in Colossians 1 and verse 9, and so, which we'll read the, the whole passage here in a moment, and so from the day we heard, we had not ceased to pray for you, asking that you be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Colossians 2 and verse 10, it says, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So are we filled because of Christ or are we filling what Christ has fallen short in filling? Are we complete or are we making complete? Are we righteous or are we becoming righteous? Unfortunately, there's no easy solution to this tension. There's no easy answer to this tension. We have to deal with the tension that is presented here in our text in a biblical way. We are seeing the argument that in Christ we are complete, pleasing to God, and righteous. And there is absolutely nothing to add to Christ, all in Christ. And I would say to you that the theme of of Colossians is everything necessary in Christ. That's the theme. I would also tell you that the theme of Colossians is to grow, to become pleasing, to walk worthy, to become complete. They are a tension. There is a tension in the themes of Colossians. What I want you to think about and consider with with me this morning is what is and we're going to look at the text here in a moment, but before we do, because I'm really going to give you three, what I would call elements that are going to be helpful for us to fulfill what is lacking, fill up what is empty, whatever might be the case. So is there anything about Christ that is incomplete? Is Christ partial? Is he, is he 90% and we bring 10%? So what is it about Christ Remember, Christ in everything in Christ, Christ in you, and then you in the church, right? So what is it about Christ that's lacking that the Apostle Paul is talking about us filling up? What is it about the will of God fulfilled in the person of Christ, completely fulfilled and satisfied? What is it that's lacking that he wants us to fill up? There's one thing that's lacking. There's one thing that's lacking. Okay? All right? No, we get to be members by Christ. Let me give you the answer. Okay? The only thing lacking is the continual, visible expression of the fulfilled will of God. 
In other words, what Paul is saying when he says that I'm going to fill up what is lacking on Christ's part, what he is saying is, is the suffering of Christ is no longer being seen today because Christ is now in heaven seated at the right hand of the Father, right? So we can no longer visibly see Christ today. So what is lacking in Christ has nothing to do with what he has fulfilled. It has nothing to do with what he has accomplished. What it has to do with is what we're able to continue to see in the world around us today, to get a visible expression, which is what the church is, right? The church is the body of Christ. So when you get to that third part where it says Christ or or, um, we in the church, what you have is you have the church not finishing something that's incomplete, but carrying on something that needs to continue to be seen. That's the role of the church. We're called to continue in a visible way what Christ completed in a complete way, what he finished. You know, when he said on the cross, it is finished, that wasn't, uh, it wasn't a cliche. It wasn't like, well, I'm almost done. It was, it is finished. However, Paul is going to carry on. Paul is going to continue the thing that Christ accomplished so that the world around us could see what Christ accomplished. So it's not that Christ is incomplete at all. It's that Christ would, Christ's desire is for the church to put him on display. That's what's lacking. That's what the Apostle Paul is telling the church to do. I want you to put Christ on display. 2,000 years ago, he spent, he spent 33 years here on this earth, right? And he put himself on display. And then he died, he sent his spirit down, ascended up into heaven after resurrecting, sent his spirit down to live within us, and he says to the church, I want you to continue, not add to, but to continue to visibly express what I have fully accomplished. So we just simply are carrying out what Christ has fulfilled, what he has accomplished. So here in this here in this um, in these verses verses 9 through 14 what you have is you have the apostle Paul praying for three specific things about the church so that they can carry on what Christ completed. The apostle Paul is not telling them in this text how to be saved, how to be complete. He's telling them how to continue the work that has already been completed. Matter of fact, one of the, one of the truths that he's going to present to them is the importance of, of having a perspective of your already salvation that will help you to move forward in expressing Christ's work. So let's, let's read together, and we're going to look at these three things in your notes. I, I want to say, first of all, in, 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 as we get ready to read, I want you to just think about, and it's, this is not in your notes, but... You can write it if you want to. I want you to notice that Paul goes to prayer. His, his answer to this, to this um, uh, tension within the text is to go to God, right? Because God is the author of the text. He wrote the text. He's the sent his Holy Spirit to help us explain the text. So he, he is the one that you should go to when you face a certain tensions in God's word. Go to him, right? Go to the author and get the answer from him because he's the, really the only one that has the, the right answer or the, the best answer. 
So the Apostle Paul uh, illustrates that for us as he faces this tension, as he, he's going to pray to them, uh, pray to God for them, that these three things might be true so that they can carry on the ministry or the work of Christ in the world that they live in. That we as a church can put on display Christ. Okay, that's what we're called to do. That's what, that's what Colossians is dealing with. And so follow along with me as we read these verses, in verse, beginning in verse number 9. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being uh, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of God. Of sins. So there are three things, three truths here or principles that we can learn if we're going to manifest as the body of Christ, if we're going to manifest or continue to put on display what Christ accomplished, what Christ finished in, in the cross. And, and again, uh, you, you maybe have heard this statement before, the only, the only Bible that the world ever reads is, is Christians, right? The only Christ that the world ever sees is the church. That's, that's all true. That's all accurate. We are placed here. We are put here to, to put on display the things that Christ has accomplished. Not, they're not incomplete except for the fact that they're not, they need to be carried on. They need to be um, displayed for others to see. So he tells us three things. The first of those things is that he, his prayer is that they be filled with the knowledge of God's will. That they be full of the knowledge of God's will. And it makes sense, if we're going to carry on the work of Christ, that it makes sense since Christ came into this world to accomplish one purpose, which was to do what? He came into this world to fulfill the will of his Father. He tells us that over and over again throughout the Gospels, that Christ was here to accomplish his, uh, his Father's work, that his, there was no action and no work and no word that he spoke that the Father did not tell him to speak. Christ was completely submitted to the will of the Father. We agree with that? perfectly submitted to the will of the Father. Matter of fact, one of his, one of his um, most, or one of his uh, notable attributes was his obedience to the Father. It was something that he was noted for all throughout Scripture. So it makes sense that if we're going to carry on the work of Christ the way that he wants it to be displayed into the world in a, in a perfect obedience to the Father, it makes sense that we have to know what the Father's will is, Right? So that's what his prayer is. His prayer begins with that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will. And this word here, filled, I'm just going to unpack this for you a little bit. The word uh, filled here is a, is a unique word. It carries two meanings, I think, that are important to understanding the text. One is that it would be filled to the top, uh, something that is crammed to overflowing. Now, this is somebody that is, that is um, uh, just... In, they're, they're uh, full of, God, of the knowledge of God. 
the knowledge of his word, the knowledge of his will, the knowledge of his work, that they have, they have studied, they have worked, they have uh, filled their mind, if you will, with the things of God. And the second uh, meaning to this word, which I think is also equally valuable, is that they are controlled by this knowledge, something that is in control of you. In other words, that you filled yourself up so much with the knowledge of God that it has taken a place in your life where it is the controlling knowledge that you have. Every one of us has a controlling knowledge in our mind, in, in our lives. It's something that we have filled our minds with, and, it, and after our mind is, com, is so filled with it, it becomes the controlling factor. We begin to think like it. And what he is saying, what he is praying for the church is that their mind would be so full of the knowledge of God, would be filled with the knowledge of God so much and so full that that their life and their steps and their walk would be controlled by the knowledge of God. Let me give you a few other texts to write down if you'd like to in regards to this idea of controlling. This term is... The same uh, Greek term is used in John 16, 16 to describe the disciples who were full of sorrow in Luke 5, 26 to describe the, um, the crowd that is full of fear. In Luke 6, 11, the Pharisees were full of rage. In Acts 4, 31, the disciples were full of the spirit. And then in Acts 6 and verse 5, Stephen was full of faith. In each one of these cases, you have people that are full of something, but their their being full of it is directly connected to their being controlled by it. You've maybe seen somebody that was full of rage before, or somebody that was full of joy before, or full of happiness, or whatever might be the case. It's so filling that they are consumed and controlled by its filling them. So that's what the Apostle Paul is praying for for the church. Why? Because if we're going to carry on what the work of Christ, which is obedience to the Father's will, perfect obedience to the Father's will, if we're going to carry that on, we have to know what the Father's will is. Ephesians 5, 17 and 18 says this, Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And the comparison, again, is the way that an alcohol, a, a drunk is controlled by, an alcoholic, by alcoholic consumption or some type of uh, uh, intoxicating substance, that the Holy Spirit should have that same control over us. This is a, this is, this is a, this is a theory to most Christians today. It's a great story, and it's great to read about, but he's comparing the, you know, the drunkard that's, that's wobbling down the street that can't, you know, can't speak two words that make any sense because they're so consumed, they're so full of that alcohol that they can't make sense of anything because they're controlled by it. He's comparing that to being filled with the Spirit of God. That the Spirit of God has so consumed you that you are controlled, that your steps and your walk and your, and your voice and your words that come out of your mouth, the Bible talks about singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord. You know, it's like people that are talking to themselves about how great God is and people look and say, man, they're just crazy. In the Bible, there's a story of one who, who was so full of the Holy Spirit that they began to speak, but they're, uh, or they were moving their mouth, but there was no words coming out. Or I don't remember the specifics of the story, but the, the end of it was that they were, they were full of the Spirit. 
And they were doing something that the world looked at and said, that looks kind of crazy. It looks kind of weird. But the Spirit of God was in control of them. They were full and under the control of the Spirit of God. And listen, this is Paul's prayer for them. Paul's prayer is that if you're going to continue to carry out the work of Christ, you're going to have to be controlled by the Spirit of God. You're going to have to be under his influence. Not under the influence of substances, but you're going to have to be under the influence of Christ, of his Spirit that lives within you. You're going to have to know him. And it says not only that we're to be filled, but to be filled with the knowledge of God. It's just literally, a, it's a general, the, the term implies a general understanding of who God is, of what his will is. And where do we get a general understanding of what God's will is? Where do we get a general understanding of what God's will is? We, we get it from the word of God. If you're not in the word, digging into the word, spending your time and your energy and your effort in the word, you're not going to know what God's will is. You might be a Christian, but you're going to have a hard time accomplishing what God's purpose for your life is, which is to carry on the work of Christ. It is to make visible what Christ completed. You're going to have a hard time doing that if you don't know the will of the one to whom you're submitting. And we can go throughout the entire New Testament and Old Testament. We can find out what the will of God is. Let me just give you a few thoughts to a few verses to consider. It says in 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse number 3 that the will of God is that we abstain from fornication or sexual sin. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, it says it is the will of God that we give thanks to God in every situation and every circumstance. 1 Peter 2 and verse 13 through 15, it says that the will of God is that we be submissive to authorities. And this is just three. They're really all throughout. You just, just do a word search on the will of God and you will find that it's all throughout the New Testament. We, we should know what the will of God is. But for, for many, it's like, I don't, I don't even know the will of God. Uh, and, and to be controlled by it is, a, is even a whole nother world. It's a whole nother world. He's talking about filling your mind and filling your heart with God's word, with God's works, with, God, with prayer, with a relationship with God, with a walk with God so much that, you, that he becomes in control of you. Again, it's a great theory, right? But that's what he's calling. That's what he's praying for this church, that they be so full of the knowledge of God, the understanding of God, that they are controlled by it. He tells us in Colossians 4 and verse number 12, he says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all of the will of God. The, the, the messenger, the carrier of the message or the pastor of Colossians, his heart's desire was that they might be fully assured of what the will of God was and then be obedient to it. So if we want to carry out what Christ has called us to, we've got to know what his will is. And we only can find out what his will is through his word. He goes on to say, he says that they be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So he doesn't, he doesn't just stop there with filling your mind with the truth of God's word, which is what his desire is, but he goes on to call it spiritual wisdom, 
which is wisdom that's taught from the word. Uh, 1 Corinthians 2 talks about that the natural man does not receive spiritual things because they are spiritually discerned, but the mind of Christ is able to discern all things. So he wants us to have spiritual wisdom, which comes from the word, and then he uses the word understanding. So he not only wants us to have intellectual understanding, but what is the word, our intellectual knowledge, but he wants us to be full to the point where we are now experiencing the truths that we understand. I remember, I think it's uh, Romans 12 and verse 1, it says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may that you may prove what is good and acceptable to God. In other words, it's not just knowing, okay? What does it mean to prove something? In science, in science if you're a scientist, what does it mean to prove something? It means to watch it work, right? It means to put it to the test and see it work. When the Bible says to prove something, what he's saying to us is put God to the test and watch him work. It's not just that we have a knowledge of God, but that when we wake up in the morning, we say, hey, I'm going to put this knowledge to the test today, and I'm going to see if God is really up to the task. Listen, God is always up to the task, right? God is always up to the task. If you put him to the test, he will prove himself to be exactly, he might not prove himself the way that you like, but he will prove himself to be exactly what he says about himself, and you will know him. He says, in all spiritual wisdom, which is an understand, which is a, a, a kind of an intellectual, a heart understanding, and, and application to that understanding. He goes on to say, so as to walk in a, worth, in a manner worthy of the Lord. So why do we need to know all of this stuff? So that we can walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. What does that mean, Pastor John? What does it mean? Does that mean that I'm going to become worthy of the Lord? Here's what he's saying, that the term walk here is used throughout the New Testament. It always, it always uh, implies your lifestyle. He's saying to know the will of God so much that it controls you so that you can walk in such a way that is a worthy reflection of the Lord. Do you see that Christians today are either a worthy reflection of the Lord or they are an unworthy reflection of the Lord. In, in other words, we either are making a good report of our God or a bad report of our It doesn't change our standing with him, does it? We're not saying, oh, Jesus' work is incomplete. No, this isn't about Jesus' work being complete or not. This is about how we are reflecting on Jesus' work. So he says, to know the will of God to be controlled by the will of God will enable you to make a good report of your God in your daily living. To walk in such a way that is worthy of the Lord. Imagine it this way, if you were to walk through life and maybe you had a real significant parent or a significant relative or whatever might be the case, and you were walking through life and you were, they were, you know, they were perhaps an intellectual or they were somebody that was well-respected in the culture or whatever might be the case, and you were just a party animal. 
just living it up in life and you really didn't, you didn't go to college, you didn't get any education, you didn't have a job, you were, you know, you're living in your parents' basement still. If anybody's living in their parents' basement, forgive me for that one, but <laughs> living in your parents' basement still or whatever might be the case and you just really didn't, and, and what, you're, what you would be doing is, is you would be reflecting poorly on, you are, you're not walking in a way that's worthy of who your parents are. And what he's saying about Christ is we, we can walk in a way that is a worthy reflection of who our God is. It's a worthy representation of him. It doesn't make us more worthy. It doesn't even say that we're worthy. It says that we worthily re- represent him. I think some of the times we get lost in the, th- the thought that it's about us. And we think, well, I can just live however I want because it's really only a reflection of me. Is that true? That you can walk in a way that's worthy of Christ. To walk worthy. He goes on in this, this really this unfolding of, of what we would call fruits of the full knowledge or the full control of God's will. He says that we might walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. This is, a, this is the, the, the life of a Christian. This is a, a worthy walk of a Christian to reflect on the Lord. We need to have a full knowledge of God. We need to know who he is, what his will is, so that we might represent him and what he has completed in this world. Let's go on to number two. Let's go on to number two. The second thing that he says to the church is that they would be, is found in verse number 11, that they would be strengthened with all power. So they would be strengthened with all power to do God's will. And this simply, the term strengthened here literally means to be enabled, to be made strong. So what is, what, is we, what is the full knowledge of God, uh, understanding, the, understanding the, the will of God, isn't, isn't, isn't enough without also understanding the power of God that is in us to accomplish the will of God. And this is why the Apostle Paul talks about on a regular basis in his epistles about Christians dying to themselves, Allowing the whole, you know, the fruit of the Spirit is these things. It's not about Christian mustering up the strength to do the will of God. It's about Christians getting out of the way of the Spirit to do the will of God. We're not capable in and of ourselves to do the will of God. But the Spirit of God within us is not, is not only capable, but willing to accomplish the will of God on a regular basis. Our job is to get out of his way. To put our strength and our, our, our body into his hands for a tool. Notice a few things about strengthened, to do in, strengthened with his power to do his will. It is his strength and not ours. We're not functioning in our strength, but we're functioning in his strength if we're going to do his will. And it is his will and not our will. His strength to do his will. It's not his strength to do our will, and it's not our strength to do his will. What he refers to here is his strength to do his will, and where is it located? It's located in the heart of a believer. It's alien to the heart of a believer, but it's located there. It's, it's present there like 
like you're present in your household. You are the temple of God. He lives inside of you. Once you become a believer, he promised to come and live inside of your heart. And he now uh, gives you or is there to provide strength to accomplish the will and the work of God. It is, it is his strength accomplishing his will, and you are a vessel that he is using to accomplish it. That's why he says, I quoted earlier, Romans 12 and verse 1, that we might be a living, a living sacrifice, which is really an oxymoron because sacrifice describes dead, and he calls us a living sacrifice. It means we are living and we are his. He says it this way in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but it is Christ who lives in me. So it is, it is his strength accomplishing his will through the ones who are saved. And the only way that we're going to be able to carry on the work of Christ, I mean, think about it, whose strength did Christ carry out his work through? The Father's will, the Spirit's strength, it was all about submission to the the triune Godhead. He was leaning, just like we lean, he was the perfect man leaning on those divine attributes that were found in the Father and the Spirit. That's why he could be the perfect example to us, because he, in his humanity, accomplished what we stand in awe of. He says in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him or through Christ who strengthens me. In Ephesians 6.10, he says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And all of the armor is his armor. He talks in Colossians 1.29, just later in this chapter. He says, for this I toil, struggling with, listen to this verse. Maybe you've got it open there. Look at it. Colossians 1.29. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy. Struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. And the Apostle Paul understood that this wasn't his own strength. He wasn't able to carry out the impossible task in his own might. But he also understood the power that he had access to. It was the power of Almighty God. The power available to those who are indwelt by the Spirit and saved by the finished work of Christ is, a limit, is the limitless power of God himself. There is nothing that God calls an individual to do that he cannot accomplish because he is indwelt with the most extraordinary power. And what are we called to do? We're called to carry on the work of Christ. We're called to carry on submission to Christ. Christ in us makes it possible for Christ to be through us. Let me say that again. Christ in us makes it possible for Christ to be through us. And it is Christ in us that is in the power of, in the person of the Holy Spirit. And then he says at the end of that, he says, um, the end of our phrase here, uh, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience. And I think we all understand what endurance and patience are, right? 
Patience is kind of waiting on things. Endurance is persevering through things. But does he end there? What does he say at the end of that? How many of you can endure and endure? And how many of you have some endurance and some patience in yourself? You can, every once in a while, you just like, mm, you know, you grind your teeth and you grit your teeth and you whatever, and you just get through it. Anybody like that? But he doesn't leave it there, does he? What does he do with those last two words? He makes it impossible. I want you to endure and to be patient with all joy. This is something that only the Spirit of God can create within an individual. It's not something that they can do on their own. It is a manifestation of the Spirit of God because we are reflecting on or representing the person of Christ He calls us to be enduring with patience and joy. We see this principle throughout the New Testament in many cases. You're familiar with Isaiah 40, 31. It says, they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So we have to, number one, be filled. If we're going to accomplish God's will, and carry on the work of Christ, the mystery or the tension that's here, we have to be, first of all, filled with the knowledge of Christ, controlled by the knowledge of Christ. Number two, we have to be strengthened by the power of Christ, strengthened with the power to do God's will. And the third and last thing this morning is we must be thankful for the completed work of God's will. In in other words... If you're, if you're going to be continuing to carry out the finished work of Christ, you have to be able to have a, a very intimate focus on the finished work of Christ. Okay, so, in it, so, so what I'm saying is, is simply this, that every day that we live, we get further and further away from the experience of the finished work of Christ in, a, in, a, in what we would call a, a visible, realistic 2,000 years ago Jerusalem, uh, Roman soldiers, cross type of a way, right? So what he's saying is, is that as you move, you have to make sure that you keep a focus on this event, Keep a focus. And it's interesting because the last several verses of this text move us from a present tense or a future tense to a past tense. What he's saying is, is if you're going to continue to do the work, obey the will of God, you have to have a focus on the completed work of Christ. And that's what he says if we read it together. He says, being, uh, uh, let's see here, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Three things that he tells us have happened. Three things that he puts into the past tense to press the people who are thinking about this tension of continuing to carry out the will of God in the world that they have to have a focus on if they're going to do it. There's something about trusting in completed work 
that motivates us to give confidence or to have confidence to do a future work. There's something about knowing what has been finished that enables us to know what we need to do for the future. It empowers us to do it. So there's three things simply that he tells us here about the past. Number one is he has qualified us. He has qualified us. He has apportioned to, the word means he has apportioned to us our inheritance. He has made us a co-heir with Christ. This is not a future event. It's not a present event. It's a present reality, but it is a past event. It is a completed event. To hold strongly to what has been completed will strengthen us for what we must do in the future. Christ in Christ, God has apportioned to you and to me a part of his inheritance. Can okay, just, just think about it from the perspective of like an, an adopted child. Imagine an adopted child comes into to the family. They become a part of the family. They become a part of the inheritance in that family. When we be, were adopted into the family of God, we became a part of the inheritance. And he has apportioned in his spirit, remember that, he has apportioned to us in his spirit our part in the inheritance. He calls it in the scriptures the, um, the down payment or the um, guarantee of the inheritance. We have been given our inheritance by being given the Holy Spirit. And, it, and it, only, it only grows from here as we look at eternity and what we're going to inherit in eternity. But the reality of it is, is we've been given our inheritance or the down payment or the guarantee of our inheritance when we receive the Holy Spirit. He has, he has qualified us in the inheritance. Before we were unqualified to receive anything from God, now we are qualified. Before we were guilty, now we are forgiven. Before we were unrighteous, now we are made righteous. Before we were sinners, now we are saints. He has, he has, he has finished, accomplished the work of making you qualified to be in his family. And how are we qualified to be in his family? It's, there's only one reason why we're qualified to be in his family. And that's the fact that his son's spirit lives inside of us. It has nothing to do with you. Or, that's, the, that's the tension here is people are saying, well, I need to do more to become. No, you're qualified in, the, in Christ. You're qualified. Now live it out. And help other people to become qualified in Christ through the gospel. He tells us in Romans 8 and verse 7, if children then heirs, heirs with God and, and joint heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, providing that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And then Ephesians 1, 13 through 14, for your own reference, he says that we are, have received the guarantee of our inheritance, which is the spirit of God living inside of us. So the first thing that the Lord has accomplished that motivates us to carry on is that he has made us accepted in Christ. He not only stops there, but he, or he doesn't stop there. He goes on. It says in verse number 13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness. 
Christ has brought us into the family, but in doing so, he has also delivered us from evil. He's delivered us from the power of sin. He's delivered us from the condemnation of sin. Romans 8 and verse 1, there is now therefore no condemnation. This is a past tense reality. For anybody who is a follower of Christ, you have been delivered from the power, from the domination of sin. Not necessarily from the presence of sin, which will happen, I think, in the future when we reach heaven. But you have been delivered from the power of sin. In John 8, when Jesus tells the woman who's caught in adultery, go and sin no more, that's not a statement of command. It's a statement of allowance. It's a setting free. Jesus is saying to her, you no longer have to live this lifestyle anymore. And if you think about it, in those days, that was the only thing that she probably was, that was the only thing that she probably knew. That was probably how she made her, life, her income. That's probably how she functioned in life. That's where her acceptance came from. That's where her value came from. That's where her significance came from was just in this sinful lifestyle. And what does Jesus say to her? You don't have to live in that lifestyle anymore. You don't have to go back to that junk because you're being set free. This is a past reality. He has delivered us. He has rescued us from the power, jurisdiction, authority, and condemnation or consequences of darkness. In the resurrection, Christ destroyed everything having to do with darkness. And he has given it to us by coming to live within us. Think about how he mocks darkness in 1 Corinthians 15, 57. He says, O death, Where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? He says, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He has finished the work of bringing us out of darkness, the power of it, the control of it, the condemnation of it. And then lastly, he has transferred us. He says, in the end of that verse, and has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. And this just simply means move. If you ever watch the old Star Trek, you know, I had to use this illustration, the, the old beam me up Scotty, you know, if you've ever heard that before. You know, that's kind of the idea here is you're being, you're being transferred from one location to another. The Bible says here that Christ accomplished for us a, a transferring of those who believe into his kingdom. And the, the kingdom is just, this is the, just the reference to the church. They've been transferred from the power of darkness into the power of light. Transferred from slavery to sin to slavery to Christ. We've been, our position has been changed on the basis of what Christ has done for us. These truths are related to what happened to you when you became a follower of Christ. But it also drives us to want to know God's will and to want to act upon and in his strength. In closing, I just want to say these few words. If you're with us this morning and you're not a follower of Christ, you would not consider yourself to be a Christian My encouragement to you is simply this. You can be qualified this morning to be an inheritor of Christ. You can be qualified 
I mean, just imagine if we were to put a table up here this morning and we were to have this huge inheritance of a multi-billion dollars and say, anybody in the church who wants to be qualified to be a part of this inheritance, come forward and we'll sign you off on that list. You know, I think we would have a pretty good-sized line uh, going up. People would probably be willing to wait until noon and skip their lunch to go ahead and get to be a part of this. Listen to me. What, what the Lord is offering us is an inheritance that far outweighs billions of dollars. He's offering us an inheritance with him as our father and Christ as our brother. It's a pretty significant inheritance, isn't it? I'm saying to you, if you're not a follower of Christ this morning, you can become one and you will be qualified to be an inheritor of God. You can be delivered this morning from the domain of darkness and you can be transferred to the kingdom of light. These are promises that are given to all those who are willing to accept Christ as their Lord and Savior by faith. John 1.12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. You want to be a child of God this morning, you have to come to him in faith. Tell him your sins. Confess your sins. Confess not just your sins, but your sinfulness. Recognize that you're not just sinning, but you are a sinner. And that you deserve to be under his wrath. But God is a very merciful and gracious God to anybody who will come to him and say, I'm guilty. He will receive them open arms. The challenge today that I believe what Satan has convinced us of is this, that we're not sinful people. So what we do is we come to God looking for something other than mercy and grace. And what we receive when we come to God looking for something other than mercy and grace is justice. And you don't want justice from God. But if you will come to him and say, God, I'm a sinner and I'm unworthy and I'm undeserving of any favor from you. And I lay myself into your hands and I plead with you to show me mercy and grace. God will do it every time. Receive Christ. If you're here this morning and you're a Christian, know this. Christ has called you to fill up what is lacking on his part. You have been called to carry out what Christ completed. What a calling. What an extraordinary calling that we've been called to as a church. It's not incomplete. It just needs to be carried on. And his church, his body, is the only one who can do it. So our challenge from Paul, Paul's prayer, my prayer for us is simply that we would be controlled by God's will We will be strengthened by God's might, and we will be thankful as a result of God's work. Let's pray together. Father, um, I pray that this uh, truth will will grasp us, grab a hold of our hearts, make us into what you want us to be, Lord, that we will love, pursue, and desire your will to be done here in this world, that we can carry on what Christ completed, and the world around us can see your good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. We love you, and we thank you for the privilege to be here and the privilege to, to, uh, to be a part of your family. In Christ's name, amen.